feedback just in general today. All right, so you with me? All right, that was a decent start already. Okay, well, good deal. Welcome to The Well. Uh, my name is Tori. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, good to be here with you all this morning. Um, so a couple of things uh, just to kind of get started. As you see, we are on the Sermon on the Mount uh, as our sermon series. Um, and we are going to be walking through that for the next 10 weeks here uh, as a church. And so I'm excited about that. This is probably one of the most, if not the most famous teachings ever uttered by a human being. And yet it is very uh, infrequently studied and very misunderstood. So I'm excited to kind of walk through that together with us. I am operating under the influence of a lot of coffee right now. And so if I like fall down and start shaking, I'm not like catching the Holy Ghost or something. You need to call an ambulance, all right? So let's just get that straight until we start. All right, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and grab them. Matthew chapter 5 will be there for the whole morning. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, there's some under every second and third chair somewhere around you. Please feel free to take and keep that. That's our gift to you. If you do not have a Bible, man, we want you to have one. So please take that home with you. Uh, we would love you to have the word. Um, you can also follow along on your smartphone if you wish. If you have the Uversion app underneath the tab section, click on live and type in the Well Austin. You can follow along that way. If you don't know what the Uversion app is or do not have that, uh, you can actually take this link and put it right into your browser and you'll be able to follow along that way. Uh, we want your eyes on the word. We, we say that frequently because we mean it. So whatever way that looks like, your physical Bibles, your phones, whatever it may be, uh, we want you to see that, man, we believe that these right here are the very words of God to us about how we can know him. And so I don't want you to uh, just be kind of leaning into what I'm saying or, or, or different things that I may present today. Like I want you to see that this is actually in the scriptures and that we have the ability to know God deeply and intimately because of that. Amen? All right. Participation level dropped already, but we're good. All right. All right. Let's keep on it. So let's go ahead and dive right in. Matthew chapter 5, and uh, we're going to pick it right up in verse 1. Seeing the crowds, he went up to the mountain, and when he had sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, okay, now, there are several things that we're going to hit on here to kind of start off our series and to pace us well. So firstly, notice that the title, even probably in your Bibles, is called the Sermon on the Mount, all right? Not the sermons or the Proverbs on the Mount. This is a sermon that Jesus delivered. And like any good teacher, Jesus doesn't have 39 and a half different points that he's trying to make throughout this sermon. What he's doing is he's trying to make one main point, and then what he's doing is he's drawing different analogies or images or direct statements or metaphors, different oratory or literary tactics to be able to help the people see the one point of his message. And so throughout the sermon, we ourselves are going to keep drawing back to what this one point of the sermon is and use all of Jesus's literary and oratory tactics to be able to see exactly what he wants us to see about himself. You pacing with that? Man, we're just, we're, we're just roller coastering down, all right? All right, so uh, we're going to keep drawing back to Jesus' main idea. Secondly, notice that it says, uh, as he saw the crowds, Jesus seen the crowds, went up and began to teach. Jesus, like a good teacher and like a good shepherd, is a beginning to try to tell people about what it means to follow Jesus. He's realizing that all these people are starting to follow him. Why? Well, because the previous four chapters, Jesus has been baptized, the Holy Spirit comes down 
down. He's been tempted, and now he's doing miracles and, and healing and, and different works. He's called four of his 12 disciples. And so Jesus is kind of starting to pick up some momentum and some steam here. He's starting to kind of get things together. So people are starting to follow him. And because of that, Jesus gets up and begins to tell them, hey, I'm really glad that you guys want to follow me. Let me lay out what that looks like. Let me lay out what it means to actually follow me. He wants those who are kind of loosely following him to know here's what it means to be a Christian or to actually follow in the teachings in the person of Christ. He wants them to really be informed of the cost of discipleship or the cost of being in the kingdom of God, which as the sermon title shows us today is an upside down kingdom. And so Jesus is going to paint a lot of things for us that is kind of backwards or upside down or different than what we are used to. It's not what most people are expecting. And so several times throughout Jesus's ministry, he actually does this. He does this in John chapter six, if you're familiar with the scriptures, where he sees all these people following him. And then he begins to teach them, hey, I'm glad that you're following me because you're seeing all these healings, but let me lay out all of the truths of what it actually looks like and means to follow Jesus. And so I think it's good for us today as followers of Christ, people who want to follow God to be able to know exactly what it means to follow Jesus. Because I think most people really love Jesus, the, the healer, right? Like if everybody who came to Jesus got healed, I think everybody would just come to Jesus because that's a good thing, right? Everybody loves Jesus, the merciful, the benevolent, the gracious God. But do we love it when Jesus kind of goes against the grain of who we are? And that's what the Sermon on the Mount actually is. It's an upside down, a backwards, against the grain of what we normally think and expect. And are we willing to still follow Jesus then? And so every time after Jesus gives one of these teachings, you see two responses. You see people really in awe at Jesus and they go, wow, this is a man unlike anybody, even his words, they feel divine. Or you see people begin to really hate on Jesus and say, I don't like that at all. And I don't want to follow Jesus. And they either leave him or even begin to persecute him. You see the same thing here. So seeing the crowds, Jesus tries to lay out, here's what it looks like to follow me. And what he really lays out is that it's far better than anybody could ever even imagine or anticipate, but it's far more different than most of us are expecting. And so Jesus lays that out. What does it look like? It's far better than any pail that we normally dip our water in for drink, but it's far different too. How, how do we do that? John Stott, who's a theologian, says it like this. It says, the Sermon on the Mount is probably the best known part of the teaching of Jesus, though arguably it is the least understood and certainly it is the least obeyed. It is the nearest thing to a manifesto that he ever uttered, for it is his own description of what he wanted his followers to be and to do. To my mind, no two words sum up its intention better or indicate more clearly its challenge to the modern world than the expression Christian counterculture. Also notice that he said that there are two words, and then he used a hyphenated word really to get three words in there, all right? Let me just tell you a secret. Pastors be cheating like that all the time, okay? Uh, last week, I said I would teach for 10 to 12 minutes, and somebody came up to me and said, you know, you went a little bit over, and I said, 
the prayer doesn't count in the time, man. Like, that's not, right, cheating, right? By the way, 10 to 12 minutes, some of the guests are like, oh, this is nice. Today ain't going to be a 10 to 12 minute sermon, all right? So just to set expectations well, all right? So here we go, right? It's a counterculture. It's different than what we're used to. Stop saying, I think it's true. Thirdly, Jesus is telling everyone who is interested in him throughout the whole sermon, here's what it means to be a Christian, and here's what it means to follow me. Just as Stott said in this introduction to the sermon series, Jesus compares and contrasts throughout the whole sermon, here's what life in me looks like, and here's what life outside of me looks like, and here's what it means to actually follow me. And really, he actually usually compares and contrasts religion with irreligion. And so Jesus says, hey, the overly religious person actually cannot follow me. The person who tries to have it all together, the person that tries to work this all out, the the overly religious person is actually outside of the kingdom of God. At the same time, the irreligious person is also outside of the kingdom of God, and they too are not following me. So the overly religious and the irreligious or the non-religious, both of those do not have a claim in the kingdom of God. Neither of those people understand what it means to be a Christian. And you go, well, then what the heck category is there? Good question. That's what the Sermon on the Mount is, right? It's a third category. It's a difference between the overly religious and the irreligious. So you cannot try to have everything together, follow this set of rules, do these certain things, and therefore you are a Christian. That's not how following Christ, that's not how Christianity works. At the same time, you do have to have a heart for knowing God. You have to want to know who God is. You can't not care. Like you can't be like, oh, whatever, God loves me. It doesn't really matter. No, it does matter. And so Jesus says that you cannot be holy enough to come to God, yet at the same time, you have to be perfectly holy. How do you do that? Right, The religious and the irreligious, he shuns out both of them, and it's an upside-down message. And so Jesus is going against the grain. In fact, in every single paragraph in the Sermon on the Mount, which don't look now, okay, but you can go study this later, he contrasts religion and irreligion, or what it means to be a Christian, and then what it means to be like a Pharisee or a non-religious person. In every single paragraph, he compares and contrasts what that looks like throughout the whole sermon. And so this is the pace that Jesus is going to give for the whole series. So let's jump into this upside down world of our beautiful Savior. Verse three, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Okay, this is the intro and probably the most dynamic and altering verse in the whole sermon. Blessed can also be translated uh, happy or joyously or joyful, but not the happy that we tend to think of like, ha ha, I'm so happy, right? Like not that kind of happy, but the deep down in your soul, like your soul is coming alive, happy or joy or, or spirit alive person. So immediately we see this delineation, this upside down kingdom. If I came in here today, if I came in, you didn't know what the sermon was about, and I just got up and I said, you know, you're truly happy when you're down and when you have nothing left in your spirit, you'd be like, did he say he was, he was under the influence of coffee or alcohol, <laughs> right? Because that's how drunk people sound, right? You know when you're really happy? When you're sad. That's when you're happy, right? Like that sounds like a drunk statement, okay? But Jesus, far from being drunk, knows exactly what he's talking about. It's this upside down piece. In fact, you don't have to turn here, but in Psalm 34, verse 6, listen to this. This is King David talking, and David says, This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of, out of all of his troubles. Question, was David a poor man? No. 
David was the king of Israel, a very, very wealthy king. In fact, he built a whole temple that was like five times the school made of mostly gold. David was not poor. But he says that he is a poor man. So poor in the biblical sense is the realization that you are unable to save yourself. That's why the text says poor in spirit. It's the realization that your soul, your inner, who you truly are, actually has no wealth. That you have poverty in the spirit. You are unable to save yourself. Thereby cannot have eternal life or the presence of God naturally or with your own energy or working. So when you become poor in spirit, why is that actually the best place to be? Why does Jesus say, this is when you are blessed, this is when you are joyful, because this is when you actually realize that you need a savior, and this is when you come to Jesus for salvation, the one who can actually make your souls come alive. Immediately, Jesus takes what it means to come alive, takes what it means to be spiritual, and immediately flips it on its head and says, actually, you come alive, you are happy, you are joy-filled when you realize you have nothing. That's when you get the kingdom. And you could probably hear his disciples who are so used to this workspace mentality go, what? What does that even mean, right? And that's what Jesus is going to do. He's going to walk us through what that means. Luke's version actually just says, blessed are the poor, for theirs is the kingdom. And what Luke is doing is he's drawing this comparison between physical poverty and spiritual poverty. So physically poor people are often in a better spiritual place than physically rich people because physically poor people already have to learn what it means to depend on other people for their help. And that makes them more quick and more ready to depend on God. You tracking with that? Uh, let me do this. So there was a, a mission trip that we did a, a few, uh, several years ago now uh, that some of the people in here actually were a part of. And uh, we went to Haiti after the devastation happened in, uh, I guess, 2010 is what it would be. And so we went down to uh, Haiti, and there was a, a person who went there who uh, was not a believer. So she had not followed Christ. She actually uh, pretty actively was hostile toward Christianity, but she wanted to go help. And so there was a church event, so a lot of Christians went, and then this person— and so on Sunday, they went and they were worshiping in a Haitian church. Now, mind you, they just lost pretty much everything, and they didn't have that much to start off with in the first place. And so they're at church, okay, and they are singing and dancing and shouting and running around and clapping and lifting up their voices and hallelujah all over the place. And this person looked and then said, what the word that a pastor can't use when he's preaching a sermon are they doing <laughs> right like like they just lost everything why are why are they so happy what, what are they doing right and she was like mad she was mad at them and mad at the lord like like why would you let them do this what what are you doing what luke is doing is he's showing what the poor person usually does is they had nothing left to depend on if there's no god what do they have they have nothing, yet because they had nothing, it forced them to depend on the only thing that actually matters in the first place, which is God, and it made their souls come alive. They were so much more happy than any of us in here are, probably all of us in here collectively on a weekly basis, because they got to see Jesus in action. They got to realize he was their provision. Their poverty led them to spiritual fulfillment. Blessed are the poor and spirit for theirs is the kingdom. They get it. They see what's happening. 
This is upside down. This is not how we interact. This is not how we teach or or respond to anything. And what's happening is Jesus is forcing them to see this. See, the problem, friends, is that we, all of us in here, most of us in here, even if we don't have a lot, we live in America. We're pretty spiritually, or I'm sorry, physically rich. And that makes us think that we're also spiritually rich, but we're not. A lot of us have a deep, deep spiritual poverty. And so who has all the spiritual answers in here, right? Like, like, like who in here keeps all of the religious code that it means to actually know and to follow and to love Jesus, even as a believer? Like, like who in here could say, man, I, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of knocking it out the park here. Like I'd be the first round pick on, on, on any draft of, of, Christian, of Christian fame. Like they'd pick Paul and they'd pick Moses and they'd pick me, right? Anybody feeling like that in here, right? No, let me actually draw it down even more. We can't even keep our own moral standards, right? I'm going to go to bed on time. And we make this rule for ourselves. And then it's 1.30 and we're like, why did I stay up and watch all this Netflix? doesn't even matter, right? I'm going to spend time in the word and in prayer. And then instead we're on Netflix, on Facebook. I'm going to uh, uh, diet and, and exercise. And we make it for three whole days. We're feeling like a champ, right? And then week three comes along, there's a birthday party and it all crashes, right? Like, like we can't even keep our own moral standards. We create rules and laws for ourselves and we can't even keep those. What makes us think that we can keep these We are poor. We are not what God has designed us to be. We do not have it within ourselves to be able to make the kingdom of God. A card fell out. (laughs) Just in case you didn't see that. (laughs) Keeping us all on the same page here, right? (laughs) So um, we can't even stand on our own moral standard. And therefore, we don't have spiritual richness. What we have is spiritual poverty. Let me actually say it like this. If we had a device right at that door and we could put on the screen everything that you thought or did in private this week, who would feel comfortable coming and just standing right here like, yeah, look, this is me. And we read all the lustful thoughts that we had, all the hatred that we had toward other people, all the nasty things that we thought or said, all the things that we'd be ashamed of that we did in private. And it just started reading off all these things. Who would be like, man, put me up on stage. I'm ready to go, right? Like, like, that's just this week. What about this month? What about this year? What Jesus is saying is, in order to receive the kingdom, you have to realize that you are spiritually poor. That in and of yourself, you don't have what it takes to come into God. Friends, look at me. It is okay not to be okay. It is okay not to be okay. In fact, God knows that you're not okay. That's why he sent his son. Like he knows that all of us have these problems. In fact, one really practical application that we can take out of even this sermon today is that we could be and should be a church where it is totally okay not to have it all together. Friends, I need Jesus. Like, like I need Jesus desperately. Like, like I, I know my heart. I know what is prone to do. Prone to wander, Lord. I feel it prone to leave the God I love. It's okay not to be okay. And for us to be able to be that for one another, that we may be able to feel, man, I don't have it all together. I need help. And for us to be able to say, you're right, you do need help because I need help too. Let's run to somebody who can help us together. That's what it means to be a church. So you don't have to plastic smile face when you come in here. I mean, if it's not okay, it's not okay. 
If you're wrestling, you're wrestling. Man, if God's blessing you and rejoicing, man, rejoice. Don't feel like you have to be like downcast. And like, that's a good thing too, right? But man, it's okay not to be okay because none of us have it together in the way that we probably should. Amen? Okay, so it's okay not to be okay together, right? I know because I meet with a lot of y'all throughout the week, right? Like we don't have it together, okay? And so church can be a safe haven where we can see that we are in need. Happy are you when you realize that there's a need, what a jolly way to start a sermon, right? We're all feeling like, woohoo, thanks, Jesus, <laughs> right? Like, like Jesus immediately kind of runs against the grain of who we are. We need saving. We don't have it together. Blessed is the person who realizes this. By the way, it was an epidemic of that day to try to act like they had everything together, but they really didn't. It's also an epidemic of our day to try to act like we have everything together, but we really don't. It's okay, okay? In order to follow Christ, you have to realize, I need a Savior, all right? Let's keep moving, verse 4. Some of y'all are like, oh my goodness. Don't worry, we're going to move faster throughout the rest of this, okay? (laughs) Verse 4. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. This is the second requirement. Now, what Jesus is doing is his very first one, blessed are the poor in spirit, really dictates the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. It really does. That's why we spent that much time on it. It helps us understand the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus now goes, blessed are the poor in spirit. It's one thing to realize your spiritual need. It's another thing to actually mourn over your spiritual need. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. If you see your need and you don't do anything about it, that's kind of the worst place to be in. Because now now you feel like, wow, I'm broken, and now you're not even doing anything about that. You just stay in the brokenness, right? So blessed are those who mourn. If you see that you need a Savior, though, and you feel the weight of that on your soul, then you're on to something. You're on to blessedness, to happiness, to joy. Think about Paul in Romans 7:24. right? Paul says, oh, wretched man that I am, who can deliver me from this body of sin, or of death, right? Well, he says, thanks be to God and Jesus. So he realizes that. But what Paul doesn't just say is, I'm a wretched man. Well, let's keep on moving, right? He says, oh, wretched man. He's mourning his wretchedness. Who can deliver me? That's what forces him to Jesus. So you need to realize that there's spiritual poverty, that there's a need, and then that needs to create within you a mourning, a feeling of that poverty. If you never feel the weight of sin, you'll never feel your need for a savior and you won't go to him. But Jesus says, blessed is the person who realizes his need. Paul Carlson, who's one of our elders, told me this is uh, also Texas A&M Aggie football's life verse. Blessed are those who mourn. One day they'll be comforted, right? <laughs> <laughs> I like to take cheap shots at elders when they're not here because then I don't get in trouble till Friday morning, all right? So, um, <laughs> all right, let's keep moving. Verse five. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Meekness now begins to change a man. Meekness is the opposite of pride. So it's one thing to see your sin and then to grieve over it, but the meek man is able to understand his condition and be humbled by it. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who is a famous uh, preacher, says this, It is comparatively easy to be honest with ourselves before God and acknowledge ourselves to be sinners in his sight. But how much more difficult is it 
it is to allow other people to say things like that about me. I instinctively resent it. We, all of us, prefer to condemn ourselves than to allow somebody else to condemn us. What is he saying? He's saying that the poor man realizes he has nothing, and this moves into mourning. He's feeling the weight of it. But then the meek man is able to realize his position before God, and he's totally fine with that because he already knows that he's a broken man and he needs a Savior. He doesn't have it all together. He doesn't have to be prideful and say, look at me, I have it all together. In fact, he knows he doesn't have it all together, so he's meek, he's humbled. What Martin Lloyd-Jones is kind of hitting at in this is he's saying, if I can come and I can kind of point out your sin, I can say, hey, look, look, here's where you are sinning. And you go, man, man I know that. Like, I, I need a savior. You're probably getting there. You're probably getting close to the kingdom. You're probably realizing your need for a savior Blessed are you when that happens. But if somebody comes and says, hey, look, here's your sin, you go, man, don't be pointing out my sin. Look at your sin, right? Like, man, you're, you're defensive. You may be kind of confessing before God, but do you really believe that? Like, do you really, or are you still trying to work up your own righteousness in order to get before God? The religious person cannot come into the kingdom. You can't work yourself up. You can't have enough good deeds. Blessed are you when you are meek and you realize this when you are humbled by it. Um, when I was back in college, I, uh, well, before I knew Jesus, I had a deep, deep, deep anger problem, okay? Um, and when I was in college, I was really being sanctified. God was doing a really, really good work. But man, this anger problem would still really come out in sports, all right? And so uh, before I knew Jesus, I used to be physically abusive. I used to uh, beat my brothers, uh, uh, do some like abusive stuff with girls that I dated. And the good thing about sanctification is if I were to say that today, 98% of people would go, what? <laughs> right? Like God truly changes a man, but I need Jesus because I know what's in my heart. So I'm playing sports that still every once in a while comes out on the athletic field today. Right? But we're in the semifinal game and, uh, we had a pretty good team, but these refs, let's be honest, they were like being shady the whole game, all right? Like, I'm not fronting. This isn't my anger talking. Like, this is real, okay? They were just doing shady stuff the whole game. And so uh, it's the, the, the last play of the game. We need a touchdown. And yo, I made this sick play, okay? And we scored a touchdown, all right? But then this dude called a penalty on me and brought it back. And I lost my sanctified mind, and I completely wigged out on that dude. And I said a lot of things that would get me fired if I said again today on stage, and I was freaking out, right? Well, my pastor was there, all right? And so that's, yeah, that's, that's funny, right? My pastor was there, so I'm walking home. And to be honest with you, like, I genuinely felt like, what was I doing? <laughs> like, like, I say I believe in Jesus, I, but I clearly find far too much identity in intramural football at Bowling Green State University. 90% of y'all haven't even heard of that school, right? Like, man, like, like, literally, I am broken, right? And I'm like, why do I find so much value in this? And I feel it. I realize my spiritual poverty. I am not finding my identity in Jesus. I'm finding it in something totally different. I'm finding it in sports, whatever it may be. That created in me a mourning. I really wish I didn't do that because I did not represent Christ well. I did not represent the gospel well. Like these people, I invited one of the dudes to church before the game started and then lost my mind like that. He ain't never come to church and he probably doesn't like Christians today, right? And like we all interact with people like that. Man, the church just da -da -da, whatever, right? And I've, I was mourning over that. I hate that I may have been a part of that. And that created meekness within me. An hour and a half later, my pastor called, said, hey man, we have to take you out of some leadership. Um, 
and you also probably shouldn't play sports for the next like six months. And I wasn't like, I saw you get mad the other day too, <laughs> right? I was already humbled and broken over my sin. I said, man, you're right. Can you help me walk through this? Because I don't know what to do. I don't know why this keeps coming out in me. That's what Martin Lloyd-Jones is saying, that the meek man is able to receive because he realizes where he is. It's one thing to realize you're poor, but if you do nothing about that, what is that? It's another thing to realize you're poor and to mourn over it, but to truly be meek, that's when you're beginning to get it. And then look at verse six. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for, what's that word? For righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. The person truly in need, truly humbled, is able to accept that humility, and they're left with nothing else but to seek righteousness elsewhere. Are y'all following that? Okay. Yes? yes. yes. I- I'm being serious. Like, this is good news, right? Like, like, the person that is truly broken, that realizes their need, they then go seek righteousness in themselves. No, they already know they're poor in spirit. They don't have it in themselves. They seek it somewhere else, and they shall be what? Satisfied. Their righteousness will be had. They will gain righteousness. Or if you look at the second part of each of these Beatitudes, you realize you're spiritually poor. This is when you receive the kingdom. You don't earn it. You don't work your way into the kingdom. You receive the kingdom. It is a gift. You receive the kingdom. When you realize you're poor, it creates mourning. But God doesn't leave us in this mourning. He says it's okay. And he comforts us in this mourning. He comes to us. He makes himself available as the one that is ready to bless us. This leads us to inheriting the earth because we're true and forever being satisfied in him. Yes, this is backwards, but like, isn't this what your heart craves? Doesn't your heart crave this sort of wholeness, this sort of righteousness? And instead of having to work and work and work for this sort of righteousness or strive and strive and strive, it is yours when you realize you cannot attain it, but God loves you so much that he sent for Jesus to do it for you. Blessed are you when you realize that. This is the kingdom of God. Yours is the kingdom. Yours is the earth. Yours is righteousness. Yours is eternal life. I think about the hymn, nothing to, in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Uh, Naked come to thee for dress, helpless look to thee for rest. Foul I to the fountain fly. Help me, Savior, or I die. Help me, or I die. We're not taking a free pass here, though. We're not being lazy. Be like, oh, Jesus, do everything. Like, this is hard. It's hard because this is not what our souls want to do. We actually try to do it ourselves. That's why the blessed person realizes he can't do it himself, right? <laughs> However, it doesn't stop here, okay? It doesn't stop with our relationship with God. It then goes and extends out to others. So keep reading, verse 7. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. So now that we are changed by God, we seek to live out this faith to others around us. We love God, and then we love people. So we're not Christians that are enamored with cheap grace or grace that doesn't do anything. Like, our grace does something. We come to Jesus with no works in and of ourselves, but then we show that we are in Jesus because that begins to change us, and we begin to bless those around us. 
put it in our language that we use at the well. We exalt Christ. We look to him. We're gospel-centered. We then become disciples because of this, but then we go make disciples and we impact the world around us. Like, like mentoring a kid at Campbell Elementary isn't going to give you salvation. In fact, you do so many bad things that this one good thing doesn't really do much if that's what you're leaning on. But when you begin to know Jesus, your heart starts stirring up your affections and you go, God has shown such mercy on me. I want to show mercy to others, therefore. It shows that you get it. And you then go become merciful. You go become a peacemaker. By the way, mentor kids at Campbell, all right? <laughs> right? Like, like you then go and do these things. You can have mercy toward others because you realize the mercy that God has given you. I can love those around me because I have received the love of God. I feel what it's like. In fact, I show that I understand it by the way that I work it out. God has been merciful to me in my sins. So guess what? I could be merciful to you in your sins. That's why it's okay not to have it all together. In fact, I could be merciful not just to those who call on Christ, but to those who don't want anything to do with Christ. Like, I know what that was like because it took me a long time and a lot of gospel work for God to show me the joy that is in his son. And so I can now love others. I can be a peacemaker. I know that I'm not better than them. Like, God has saved me. You become a peacemaker. You strive for peace. Why? Because now you have peace with God. And so you want to deliver that into others. Do you see the path that Christ took us down in the intro and the Sermon on the Mount? Are y'all tracking with this? Like what he's doing here? He's giving what his whole life message is. Love God and love people. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. This is what he's doing. You become humbled. You're poor in spirit. You accept the grace of God. And this changes you to be a merciful, a, a, a pure in heart, a peacemaker toward other people. Christ, following Christ is backwards, but it's what we were created to do. Let's finish this. Verse 10. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Yet still some people don't love you. Right? Like you're a peacemaker. You strive for mercy. But, but, but some people still reject that. Okay? They don't see your spiritual poverty. They themselves aren't spiritually poor. They themselves aren't meek. So if you were to point out their sin, of course they're going to be hostile toward that. What else is there to do? They're trying to have it all together themselves. And you're ruining that by saying you can't do it. So then there's persecution that comes, right? Notice too that it says you're persecuted for his sake, not because like you're a jerk or something, okay? Like if you're a jerk and you're being persecuted, you're not being persecuted. You're just a jerk, <laughs> right? Like you're shocking with that, okay? So it's not like we're like, I don't care at all anymore. Let me go say this stuff. Like, no, we're humbled. We're, we're meek. We've been changed by the grace of God. This longs for us to be peacemakers with mankind, to be merciful, to be pure before others. Notice that Jesus says, when you are persecuted, not if you are persecuted. It's going to happen if you believe in Jesus, there's going to be persecution. This should not be a shocking thing for the Christian, but we're able to be meek before that because we know what it's like. We've been on the other side. And Jesus somehow won us to himself. Now, you rejoice and when people reject you, right? 
And listen, here's the crazy thing about this, because I think a lot of us in here are people pleasers. Like if I were to say, every people pleaser, raise your hand. In fact, let me just do this. If you're a people pleaser, raise your hand. Okay, now keep your hands up. Raise them up high, don't be ashamed. Would you please look around? I'm being serious, look around. Realize that about 80% of the room right now has their hands up as being a people pleaser. It's okay to not be okay. You're in a safe place. Some of y'all left your hand up for a long time. Like, hey, I really am, right? <laughs> it's okay not to be okay, right? Like, it's okay. Do you know why you want to please people so badly? Do you know why? Do you know why verses like this are hard for you to hear? I mean, blessed are you when people persecute you. Do you know why you go, I, I don't want that to happen? Because it's been hardwired into you, into your very DNA by the God of the universe to long for acceptance. The problem is we're selling ourselves cheap and we're trying to gain acceptance by man who cannot justify us for eternity. What your heart was designed was for acceptance by God, the only one who truly matters. Listen, friends, when you stand before him on that great day and he looks at you in your eyes, and you feel that gaze enter into your soul, and he says, well done, my good and faithful servant. All of the human praise and all of human history will not measure up to that moment of acceptance. Amen? Like, you were designed to it. That's why we're all people pleasers. That's why we don't like verses like this. But Jesus says, hey, no, be happy, be blessed, because you are being accepted by me and therefore rejected by others who also reject me. But one day, yours is going to be the kingdom. You are going to be with me. I am going to accept you. Like, this is a beautiful truth, right? And so we can take comfort. We can take hope in that. We can rejoice in Christ because if we are in him, we've already been approved by God. We don't need the world's approval. Do you see this upside down backwards kingdom that Jesus painted here? Like this is the start of the Sermon on the Mount, by the way, okay? Some of you are like, I ain't coming back to this church, all right? It's all right. Like, like read through this, right? Like, like it kind of goes against the grain of who we are. It says, you can't be good enough, but there was one who was for you. There was this Savior, this, this Jesus. Because listen, friends, if world's acceptance, if riches, if laughter now, if all of these things that Jesus said you're blessed for and they're backwards, let's pretend that the reverse is true, right? Like blessed are the rich, blessed are those who laugh now, blessed are those who are prideful, not meek, they have it all together. Like blessed are you now, but that's all there is. What do you get? 80 years of people's approval and then you die and that's it? Like, isn't your soul telling you there's something more than that? Not 80 years, 20 years of people's approval? Or you work and work and work for riches and to have it all together only to have it crumble down when you do one wrong thing or only to have it pass away to somebody else who's a fool after you? Like, if this, if there is no kingdom, what are we working for? What are we striving for? This is it? Like there's gotta be something more. Our soul screams there's something more. So though it's backwards, Jesus is showing us, man, here's how you get into the kingdom. And friends, all of us in here have this spiritual poverty, this need, but oh, oh what a savior we have in Jesus. Jesus, throughout this whole Sermon on the Mount and throughout these Beatitudes right here, he is not only our example, but he himself is our fulfillment in every single one of these. Jesus became spiritually poor, didn't he? What do I mean? Jesus was the most spiritually rich person in ever, 
Like, like you believe that, right? Like, if he is God, if he is who he says he is, he's God. Like, he has it all together. And Jesus became sin. Not just one, mankind's sin. Jesus was the most spiritually poor person ever, so that you who are spiritually poor may be rich in him. Man, okay. Like, this is good news, right? Like, like this is what our hearts were designed for. I'm about to punch something. That's why I'm like, calm down. We're going to be here till like 3 o'clock, right? Like, like Jesus, man, this is, this is what the gospel is pointing to us. All of us are poor in spirit. If we dare think long enough about our poverty, we'll realize we have a hole in our heart. We have something that we are trying to fill, and we can't do it. But Jesus, in becoming spiritually poor, made us rich in him. This is a beautiful thing. Man, this is a beautiful thing. Don't get used to this truth, friends. Let this be awe-inspiring. Let this move you to worship. That God would love you so much that though you and all your jacked-upness are all jacked up, he would still win you to himself. He would love you anyway. He would become that for you that you may be built up in him. Jesus mourned. Why? That you may be comforted. Jesus was meek wasn't he? I mean, think about this. Jesus had all of the power of heaven at his hand. He said, right now I can call down legions and legions of angels to utterly wipe out everybody. Jesus had all power yet gave it up and became naked on a cross and died so that you and I who have no spiritual power will one day judge the angels, scripture says. Like we will inherit the earth. We will be on the throne with God. What type of promise is this? What type of savior? do we have where he possessing everything that our hearts crave would give that all up so that we could be able to be full in him friends this is the gospel this is the kingdom of God this is what Jesus is inviting you into come in come in stay in if you have come in stay in this like allow your soul to continually be refreshed in the gospel and to continually build you up because this is the kingdom we were designed for This is what our hearts are craving. This is what they are longing for. Jesus is the fulfillment of all of your blessings. So bless him. Bless him. All of these blessings find their yes and amen in Christ. So bless him because of that. Exalt him. Love him. Friends, isn't this something that you want to be a part of? Isn't this the kingdom we were designed for? Not to have to strive and strive and strive. We have it in Christ. Praise Jesus. Hallelujah. But then that changes us to love others around us and to give of ourselves freely. Friends, this is what Christ is inviting you into. Blessed are you when you realize this. When you realize your need for him, this is when you come alive. I love you guys. Let's pray. God, I pray right now that this truth will become more real than it ever has to us. That you would really help us to uh, come alive in you, Jesus. That all of these blessings, things that are confusing, things that are conflicting, that we would be able to see the power of the gospel laid out in this text and that we would submit ourselves to the gospel and believe God, I know that even right now, 
Some, some of us in here, God, many of us are, are trying to trust ourselves for our own spiritual or emotional or eternal blessing. We don't have it within ourselves. Would you remind us of that? I know that there are some of us in here, some of you in here who have never said yes to Jesus, who have never followed him. You keep trying and trying, or you try to find other things that give you blessing. I pray that even right now as God is whispering to you, this is real, this is good, this is true, that you would submit yourself to him and follow him. The kingdom is yours, friend, if you believe in Jesus. God, I pray even right now that there would be those who choose to believe and push their faith in you. God, some of us as believers, we, we forget the weight of this truth. Even though we, we come to you empty, we try to stay in you, working ourselves full. God, will we realize we're empty without you, that we need you, and that we repent. We lay ourselves down, Jesus. Forgive us as we try to work up our own righteousness. I am poor in spirit. I came into church this morning poor in spirit. The inability to express this, the inability to even believe this, God, help us to believe. Make this a reality to us, God. Let us receive the blessing of the kingdom. Help us to be spiritually poor that we may find our strength in you. Jesus, thank you for coming down to earth for us. We love you, God. We praise in your very, very beautiful name. Amen.